You're listening to Your Healthcare's So Broken with Rory Cusack-Weir, PhD. She's your doctorally trained epidemiologist, healthcare technologist, armchair comedian, and de facto care coordinator for herself and her loved ones. Hear real stories about the broken U.S. healthcare system from patients, caregivers, and subject matter experts. No joke, these podcasts could be life-changing or even life-saving. Welcome to Your Healthcare So Broken, Episode 1, Part 2. Please check out Part 1 if you're just joining us for Part 2. I think things will make a heck of a lot more sense. If you're tuning in to continue this story with Dr. Erica Butler about her healthcare being so broken it almost cost her a literal arm, thank you. I hope this provides a lot of information on what to do if you are a healthcare consumer, if you are a caregiver, if you are a friend. How do you navigate the system for yourself? or a loved one based on really hard learned lessons of Dr. Butler and her family and her friends who care about her and are so thankful she got to keep her arm and she got to keep her life. Okay, so you're dealing with like your own care coordination. You're dealing with like discussing with work, like when you can come back, you're having all these medical appointments, right? Where you're actually having to like relearn things that would have just been instinctual. And then you're going to meet with lawyers and preparing documentation. I'm sure you're having to recount all of this. So can you (laughs) shed a little bit more light on like the litigation aspect of this? So I think the, one of the biggest problems with my situation is that there were so many different encounters or, you know, instances where I was, you know, meeting with the the healthcare system. So not only were there the injuries and the surgeries I had back in high school that were kind of the initial surgery, um, but now I've been in the hospital for multiple, or I've had the outpatient surgery. I've had two inpatient stays and surgeries there. Um, And when you're talking, or from my experience, you have to get a medical reviewer. So I went to this really well-known, very successful malpractice attorney in, in Ohio. Um, and they were like, okay, we'll, we'll get a medical reviewer to okay. review your case. If we get a medical reviewer signed on, then we can, we can make a case and we can, you know, pursue and this. It. Is like potentially if you're watching like law and order, mm-hmm. the medical specialist who's like giving yeah. testimony, if it were, you know, to yeah. proceed like that. Okay. So the first one gave their medical opinion and they said, there's no precedence for what happened to you because my situation was so unique. It wasn't cut and dry. I, I didn't go in, have something happen, come back out. I had an old injury. Somebody else had touched it. Like I, I it was just, it, there were so many things that happened yeah. and the medical reviewer and then a second medical reviewer that I paid for out of pocket, um, to review the case, both said that they wouldn't sign on to the case. There's no precedence for it. Um, so the decisions that were made by my surgeon were as appropriate as they could be because there was no yeah. precedent. So nothing ever came up about the fact that I called multiple times, yeah. like none of that mattered after like, none of that mattered because my situation was weird. Yeah, and it's tough because, like, I don't want to tell you how you feel about this, but, like, your surgeon took the Hippocratic Oath, like, first, you know, harm. So, 
he probably was just doing what he thought was best. But I think, again, it's that timeline thing. And mm-hmm. so, like, because Erica, you and I are both epidemiologists, like, we're just thinking, like, data, 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 and, like, the sequence of events. So it's interesting is, like, I don't know, you have your cell phone for the call logs. Um, you have the fever service healthcare industry that we're all living and breathing in where they're billing you every time you're going in. So you can connect the dots, like looking back at the data, um, but it's so hard in the moment, I think, for these providers to connect the dots. And then you are a data point and like you are your biggest advocate and like you weren't being heard. And so that's like you said, it's just sort of like a question mark in this whole equation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I hope people are still listening along. This is not meant to totally scare you away from interacting with our healthcare system, albeit very broken. Or, you know, if you have some sort of prior injury, like Erica, you did the best that you could, you had these fitness goals and you just wanted to like move forward. But it happened and you didn't let it hold you back. But I want people to understand like how common is this? So like, like Erica is my friend out of all (laughs) my friends. How might this manifest? It is relatively uncommon, less than one per 100,000 females. So this is not maybe an everyday occurrence that everyone needs to be concerned about. You've mentioned um, throughout the conversation that it typically happens in the leg and that like when it does happen in the arm, that's more of like a crush, like a very traumatic injury situation. Um, and what's interesting is, I know you've shared this with me, but like the comments about the legs. Yeah, so I've always had really bad shin splints. Um, so I've often wondered if compartment syndrome is like something I'm predisposed to. Like, do I have, maybe do I have a chronic compartment syndrome yeah. in my lower leg? And then... Also, like, a very vague memory I have is in my very first surgery when I was in high school still, um, I remember them, when somebody came in, and they cut my cast on both sides, um, and that, now that I know all of these yeah. things, it was to prevent compartment syndrome that they, that they did that, because um, putting a cast on can also restrict, constrict so things to the point a where... Fixed, yeah, yeah. position. So, like, if it's too tight and your tissues don't have enough room to, like, expand and contract and deal with all of that pressure that's building. So, I know that something happened to the point where they came in and cut my cast. I don't know if it was just routine or whatever. Whoa. But, like, you know, years later as I'm, you know, researching, you know... Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. You're just racking your brain. Yeah. So, like, as an academic you know, researcher in my own right. Like I know a lot about compartment syndrome now because of all the research I did, you know, on myself and like kind of what was happening to me. Um, and that made it really difficult too. Like I didn't have anybody that understood what I was going through, especially with like that level of nerve pain. I found one blog online, just one of a guy that whose nerves had to grow back. And like his experience was very much exactly like mine. But that was like the only account I could find of like the wow. feelings. And that he, I had. he was maybe like so desperate to find a community that he went through the effort of writing. A yeah. Blog. So it was it was really I don't think he had I can't remember if he had compartment syndrome, but like we had this very similar yeah. nerve damage issue. So anyway, it was just yeah. Any anywho, anyway. uh, so <laughs> as you're talking as a fellow epidemiologist, like. All I can think of is the causal pie model. So I'll definitely like link out to the details if anyone wants to take a deep dive on this. But the best way to explain this is almost thinking about the game Trivial Pursuit. How do you win? 
you have your little piece and you get like individual basically pieces of the pie and whoever fills their, um, you know, game piece first and gets to the middle, uh, wins. And so what's tough is you want an explanation. And a lot of times in epidemiology, it's nuanced. The answer is it depends. So like, you'll never know how do the pieces have to fall into my, you know, specific situation and like what made it basically sufficient, right? Where like, this is going to set off this chain of events. So that's very frustrating because what we study is like causal inference. So you want to be able to say for these, you know, 0.7 less than one per 100,000 women that are gonna experience this issue, you want to be able to describe why Mm -hmm. because you want to prevent it. All right, this is gonna be a tough one, I think, to sort of talk through because I don't know how people are listening to your story and not thinking like scream louder, yell louder, um, women's pain being downplayed. Mm -hmm. I love like your hot take and then I can like put it in the literature, but it's like, it's your lived experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think this, um, this is still, this still happens to me all the time. Like I I mentioned before, I I have a really high pain tolerance and I always have. And I don't, um, I was also taught to like suck it up and, you know, not be a baby or like whatever. So like, I don't typically, I'll be very calm. I'll be like, I'm in a lot of pain. And like, I will say it very calmly, like this hurts. I'm not going to freak yeah. out. I'm well, never going to. And knowing you personally, if mm-hmm. you let every inconvenience or <laughs> yes. pain like derail you, it's mm-hmm. like you never would have moved to Ohio yeah. to do graduate school. You never would have done a lot of things. So, it's, yeah, that's also like your resiliency. But yeah. like to some people, it's perceived as like, I don't know, mm-hmm. how bad can it be? Right. So, so yeah, I think, um, you know, especially during this situation, um, with my arm and all the surgeries and everything, so many times people downplayed the pain I was going through. And then now just like on a daily basis, I'm in so much pain that like, I just, it's just something I deal with. And it's something that is just part of my life now that I can't really change. So I'm rolling my eyes for people who are listening along. So I'm just going to read some of the stuff verbatim because I have to underscore this as a fellow woman who's been ignored in the healthcare system. Um, So this is from the Journal of American Heart Association. Women who visited the emergency departments with chest pain waited 29% longer than men to be evaluated for possible heart attacks. An analysis of 981 emergency room visits showed that women with acute abdominal pain were up to 25% less likely than their male counterparts to be treated with powerful opioid painkillers. Women with chest pain and other symptoms of heart disease were twice as likely to be diagnosed with a mental illness compared to with men who had the same symptoms. And I have to underscore that there's also like a racial bias that can interact with the gender bias here. So like Erica and I, we both are white. We're both affluent in the grand scheme of things, way too educated on these particular topics. And so, you know, women of color have an even harder time being heard, being taken seriously, receiving like the timely care. And there are so many examples 
for other podcast episodes about what happens when women aren't listened to. Well, there's a, a the Olympic runner, the black, the news. yes, the black woman who died in childbirth, and she was an Olympian, right? Tori Bowie. So she was um, she died of complications related to childbirth at eight months pregnant, um, and she was at the Rio Olympics, and she ran the second leg of the four by one hundred relay. So just, I mean, just thinking of somebody that's in like peak physical condition and like superhuman strength to be able to train like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and knows her body. Right. Yeah. And I think that's like the theme is that like, as a woman, as an athlete, like, you know, your body better than anyone else. And I think what just honestly pisses me off more than anything is like women being hysterical. And mm-hmm. it's like, I want people to say that in the context of they love my, you know, deadpan humor not not listening to me when I'm fighting for my life, when you're fighting for your life, like why would you go through the effort? And sure, there are people who quote unquote abuse the healthcare system. They may not know how to have a relationship with a primary care provider to sort of get that day-to-day maintenance care. And so they just go to the emergency department to get seen immediately. But like how much more extreme could your situation have been and then you're still just trying to say, like, please listen to me. Mm-hmm. And no one's asking, like, hey, who are you? And you're like, hey, I'm highly educated. At this point, you have your master's in public health. You're working, like, adjacent, right, to the healthcare industry. And you're pursuing a doctorate that's looking at all these different puzzle pieces mm-hmm. to explain healthcare and population health issues. So... Don't get me started, and mom, I'm trying to like not use curse words and represent as well. I know dad would be disappointed. Um, you've talked a lot about ongoing nerve damage. I think you know this is something that's personal to me because my husband suffers with this. Like I, I can't relate to what you're saying because I don't think I've felt those feelings before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, it, they're, it's, it's really, it's weird. It's hard to explain, and it's hard to. It's hard to get people to understand what you're saying because... Um, but do you remember life before it? Or is it just such a constant that it's hard? Uh, I don't I don't know. I think it's just such a... This is just like my new normal. And it has been for so yeah. so long now. But like um, like one, one thing that people... I think a lot of people can relate to is like when you sit on your leg and it's asleep for too long. Or you lay on your arm and it's asleep for too long. It. I have like so much trauma around this because that's kind of some of those feelings are kind of what you feel um, when you have the nerve damage. And I'm always afraid that, like, or one of the ways that you can get compartment syndrome is that people do is if they're in a long surgery and they're like rolled over on their arm until maybe they're in like an eight hour brain surgery or something and they've been laying on their arm the whole time, that can induce compartment syndrome. So sometimes I wake up thinking that I've given myself compartment syndrome in my other arm because I've laid on it while I was asleep. (laughs) I wake up and how how could you not be paranoid after all of this? That feeling of, your arm waking back up or your leg or your foot waking back up that is imagine that intensity but like lasting for like months like it's like a feeling that i can't handle for even a few seconds and like that's how it was for months so i can't and that's why this is so upsetting (laughs) yeah um it's not fun yeah and i know again so we talked about how sure there are some bad actors in the healthcare system largely people are doing the best they can there's a need for data to be more integrated, which could have connected the dots between some of your disparate experiences, including like phone calls where you're trying to escalate. Um, so 
just to like underscore this, and again, we're not speaking poorly of anyone, we're just putting this into context. So acute compartment syndrome is one of the most highly litigated conditions in ortho, orthopedic surgery. And there have been awards up to $14 million for failing to diagnose and adequately manage the condition. But I think, you know, in your case, there was nothing to pursue in terms of litigation, but like you sort of get life's most precious prize, (laughs) invaluable, like in the nick of time, Mm -hmm. you are believed you still have your arm, albeit with limitations, mm-hmm. and you're alive. Yeah, yeah. It's and I think sobering. those, <laughs> yeah, and like those, those condi- those cases where they can go into litigation are often ones where like they put a cast on the arm, and that induces the compartment syndrome. It's like it's it, there's a precedence for that. There are people like they know that that can yeah. cause compartment syndrome. They know that that could happen, and so they can go into litigation because there is a precedence there. Like they know not to. Yeah put that cast on and keep it on. So that's where those situations are different. Yeah, very explicit, like, human error and judgment. (laughs) There's a few more things just to, like, wrap up. It's, like, I think what I'm hearing, it's, like, I I know your ex-husband. I know everyone is doing the best they could at the time. Something that I have been contemplating a lot, just, like, professionally and personally, is, like, having a plan with your caregiver. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you are stoic, if you are sort of a weird, like, human computer, uh, like you are, where you're processing all this information, you're trying to triangulate what to do next, and probably, like, having conversations in your head to say, like, where's the threat and how do I minimize it? This is a joke, but, like, maybe it shouldn't be. People have safe words in other scenarios where you have said to your partner, to whoever you're going to be participating in something with like this is the word that lets you know this is like cross the line and like something needs to happen i honestly think there needs to be a term that doesn't make people think about bdsm for safe words and caregiving where it's like i don't need a little bell but like i am afraid for my well-being and i may be incapacitated so this is my desperate plea to like escalate the situation no questions asked mm-hmm. What do you think of that? I think that that could be really important. I think that sometimes the people closest to you in your life can make assumptions about how you're feeling based on things that have happened in the past Mm -hmm. or knowing you. And those assumptions may not be, you know, appropriate in an emergency situation that maybe they haven't experienced. So maybe they're, they're kind of, taking you in as they would in any other situation, but this yeah. is like a completely new scenario and they're, they're not understanding like the gravity of the situation or, you know, like it's, for it's me, a new version of you. They think yeah. never or like for me coming out and just being so, I'm just like, I'm being really calm because like, that's how I handle really stressful situations. I come out. You're, like, you're the calming force in yeah. your family. Like, <laughs> I think we can yeah. underscore that. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, you know, when there's a crisis, I'm typically the one that's called in to kind of fix things. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, if I had had a word like that, or if we'd had a plan, because this was so routine, like we didn't yeah. have a plan. It was supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be like a fun day yeah. watching garbage TV. Yeah. And you're, yeah. So it was, we didn't have any of that. And, and then we, you know, there were a lot of, there were a lot of situations in the, the following weeks that could have been a lot easier if we had a, a better plan or had, you know, really taken the time to understand the situation or the potential implications of what was going to yeah. happen, like the potential risks and, 
you know, we were really young. We didn't think about, we didn't really think about it. It was like, oh, the doctor said this is going to yeah. be easy. It's going to be fine. Like there were some other things that happened in there where like I was allergic to some medications that they gave me and stuff where like I was going, oh, I like how we just, you know, I, totally over that. That. Yeah. I kind of forgot about that. But like, you know, again, like, you know, there, we would have, we could have avoided a lot of yeah. the stuff that happened. And what's tough is, like, there are roles, like, care coordinators that can be, like, more social work-based, that can be clinical-based. Um, there's more, like, patient advocacy, where it might be someone who's more of a lay person who's trying to help you navigate these issues. But it's, like, it, it's on you to think about it holistically, which is very challenging when you are the one experiencing the mm-hmm. event, and the event is more than you ever bargained for. Mm-hmm. Um this is sort of like my last question for you. It's like, how have you dealt with the medical trauma? Because we're able to sit here now, oh my God, nine years uh, <laughs> after the fact and like have this conversation. What have you found like personally just to give yourself some peace that this happened to you? I've been through a lot of different types of therapy. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of therapy, like across the board. <laughs> like I, I saw a therapist, um, I had a, a long-term therapist that I'd seen for many reasons and, um, for several years. So I, I did quite a bit of therapy in that sense. I did physical therapy. I did massage therapy. I think for me, knowing that I did everything I could to make it better helped. And then also, you know, just sharing my story with people and really, hoping that they can take away from it that they have to be their own advocate. Like I even, I had a caregiver. I wasn't by myself, Yeah. but this person wasn't equipped to, you know, stand up for me the way I needed to. And it really, I think just helping, it helped me kind of come out of my shell a little bit and like stand up for myself in ways I wouldn't have before. So I think doing the therapy, doing all of the uh, physical things I could do for myself, I think those all helped. And I had a really, great network of friends like I had (laughs) this is I had friends that would come over and help me with self-care stuff like helping me like shave under my arms like one of my friends cut my nails and shaved under my arms that's that's love that is love like I mean come on like so such a really weird position to put that person in but you know I I accepted help from people I um I think just letting your letting the people that love you take care of you. Like that's hard for me to do, especially after something like this. Um, but I think all of those things help get me through that. Absolutely. Well, I think we did it. I think we just (laughs) recorded a podcast. I don't know where we thought this adventure would take us today, but, um, yes. So Dr. Butler, my friend, my esteemed colleague who I hope I get to work with again in the future. Um, and you know, a public health expert, so these things can happen to real people. They can happen to anyone. I think we're acknowledging certain like privileges or um, you know advantages that others may not have had. But despite all those things, this was not funny. But your healthcare is so broken, Erica. It almost cost you an arm, literally. I'm glad it didn't. I'm <laughs> glad it didn't cost you your life. Like that is so upsetting for me to say. Because I love you so much, and like you and I now get to call each other when we have things going on. When myself and my husband Jason just need like another voice of reason in the room, like you are that person to be a proxy for me, and I can't do that for myself. So look at us. (laughs) 
All right. I haven't, you know, come up with a formal ending, but I like slancha. It's from the old country. I'm, you know, Irish American, and it just means to your health. So thank you so much for helping me kick this off. Thank you for having me.